We are, uh, this is quasi the last week of our human series, and I say quasi because next week I'm, I'm going to put it all together in a bow, and it's going to be a little bit different than this. It's going to try to make meaning of everything that we've talked about over the past few weeks. But uh, what we've been doing here is just trying to open up the scriptures, and not only that, but seeing what uh, popular thinking has to say about our humanity, who we are as human beings, doing this again and you know, some of you are like, I guess I have to kindle this guy's books or whatever, but Yuval Noah Harari, who was, a, you know, not even a scientist, but he's a very brilliant uh, historian who has tried to show what human history would really look like if we take God out of the equation altogether. If there is no God, then what does it look like for our very existence? And I thought that's why it's a compelling subject, especially for us who deal with people who, you know, aren't usually lapsed Christians, but they have deeper issues of faith. And maybe you yourself are grappling with some of these issues in your life, and that's fine. What we want to be able to say is, is that we can, as people of faith, engage popular thought with reputable answers. And I'm hoping, at least with us piecing together, even if we haven't answered all these questions you might have, that we've at least pulled on some threads that have made you think about it more deeply. Uh, I want to begin uh, this morning with the story of this guy named Bruce Steffen, a nondescript guy. He was, he's uh, uh, still alive, and he is an engineer, um, and pretty good as his, his job, was centered and still is in the state of New York, but was a, a New York City-based engineer and had national clients um, with whom he worked as a consultant. And it happened that in 1989, he was with a, uh, on a business trip to San Francisco, and he was commuting between Oakland and you know, San Francisco. If you've ever been there, just recently, just like last year, the year before, they rebuilt the Bay Bridge, but there was a long stretch of bridge that hops between an island and then the mainland of Oakland and San Francisco. He's driving across the bridge, and he feels like his shock absorbers have gone out. But as he looks over to the guardrail, he realized that it wasn't a shark absorbers. It's that he was in the midst of an earthquake. So as he's driving and he's adjusting, he starts to slow. But he feels what he described as the engine falling out. And then the realization that his car was actually going downhill toward the bay. And by the way, this precipitous drop would, would prove deadly. And he even admits that at this point, he blacked out. Um, there's two cars here. A third car actually went into the bay. So when he woke up, he's staring down his view into the water, you know, hundreds of feet below, and somehow manages, he's like, I can get out, but then realizes that he was driving a colleague of his, so he helps her out as well and survives this tragedy. And what Bruce said, you know, after the fact was, that made me really look at how I live my life. Right? You could say that you know, an event like this would really scare the hell out of you. It would make you think about how you lived your life. Believe it or not, just a decade or so later, as he had lived and changed his life, he was working in the North Tower of the World Trade Center on the 60th floor and felt the building shake. His building was hit by the first plane. And he just knew like something was amiss and decided to leave. And he was hastened by this because his wife actually worked in the opposite tower. And sure enough, but he made it to street level by the time the second plane impacted. And he looked up and he realized that his wife should have been in the floors where the plane had hit. 
So he thought, you know, oh no, no, my wife is dead. But she actually saw the fireball, got out quicker than virtually anybody, and they were able to meet up like 10 blocks down the street at a synagogue. So here's this man in the midst of both these, you know, instances that that, uh, he experienced with any one of these things would make you famous for one life, but he was in the middle of the San Francisco earthquake of 1989 and in the midst of the World Trade Center when it was attacked. And it was at this where he just was like, life is just not worth anything else anymore. And he and his wife just sold everything they had and bought like a little place in upstate New York. And they're just like, this is what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. We're just going to be. I loved this quote that Bruce gave when reflecting on his experiences. He says, you get a perspective on death when you're thinking you're going to die. When I blacked out on the bridge collapse, I got the feeling that death wasn't going to be so bad. When you believe you're going to die, you aren't going to be there, my mind could not deal with the concept of death, and it shut it off. This morning we're talking about death because as it relates to humanity, I think it's one of the preeminent subjects that we can talk about. Specifically, you know, for us people of faith, trying to measure what death means to us as people who live daily. And so many times, it is what, like Bruce was talking about here, is that it is not usually into those incidents where we're confronted with death when we actually give much thought about it. Yeah, so it's a morbidly depressing topic, but I think it's something that we need to look at every once in a while, especially from a Christian perspective, to see what that experience means to us. And then also to be able to, as we're looking through, you know, a a more scientific what we were saying in evolution's perspective, try to say how they grapple with the event as well. So as we move into this, I want to bring up another example this week. And I read this amazing article in the New York Times by this woman right here, Kate Bowler. Kate is a professor at Duke Divinity School down in North Carolina. And just this week, you can find the article. She, she um, published some thoughts and musings because she's written a book called, um, and I have the name of it here, and I, it's on my to-do list, Everything Happens for a Reason. Because a few years ago, Kate was... Uh, diagnosed with an inoperable uh, liver cancer. So she's had different treatments and she kind of defeated, but now every 18 months now she has to go back to the, the doctor to have a scan to see where she is within this thing. And she says it's that experience which has really forced her to focus on death. And what she does for us here, and I want to see this, is that we, we see that there's perspectives on death, but I have to offer that many times, even the Christian perspective is lacking. And, you know, even to start, Kate explains it as thus. She goes, some people minimize spiritually by reminding me that cosmically, death isn't the ultimate end. People will say things like, it doesn't matter in the end whether you're here or there. It's all the same. Uh, said a woman in the prime of her youth. She emailed this message to me with a lot of praying hand emoticons. (laughs) I'm a professor at a Christian seminary, so a lot of Christians like to remind me that heaven is my true home, which makes me want to ask them if they would like to go home before me, maybe now. 
So even those of us who ought to have a better view on it sometimes struggle. And it's, you know, working with people, you know, and when I try to, I've taught this to ministers, you know, because in seminary, and trying to teach ordinary people when it comes to death, we feel this obligation as if my words are the solution to the experience that they have. And most often, I think biblically, the example ought to be one of Job's friends at the beginning who just shut up and were there and were present. But this is something that she grapples with in there. Is that, you know, and again, this is why we're doing this conversation. Because many of us love just to give these, you know, whack job fundamentalist Christians a rough time without looking at the opposite end of the spectrum. And this is something that Kate does. When she says, atheists can be equally bossy by demanding that I immediately give up any search for meaning. One told me that my faith was holding me hostage to an inscrutable God, that I should let go of this theological guesswork and realize that we're all living in a neutral universe. But the message from both the ardent believer and the atheist is the same. Stop complaining and accept that this is just how it is. And friends, those aren't words of death that are um, comforting to say the least. But again, how do we then make sense of this? And I think the first topic I want us to look at here is the, the idea of avoiding death. Is death avoidable? And we look to the scriptures and we see, no. Um, I don't usually pull out different translations. I'm a New International Version guy, but there's a thing called the New International Reader's Version that has a version of Ecclesiastes 9 that I think did a better job of explaining this than I would. And what the Bible tells us unequivocally is that we can't cheat death. Ecclesiastes 9, everyone will die someday. Death comes to the godly and sinful people alike. It comes to good and bad people alike. A good person dies and so does a sinner. Those who make promises die, so do those who are afraid to make them. So, you know, the, the wisdom of the ancients written 3,000 plus years ago was this term of inevitability, right? Like, we are alive, but at some point, friends, this is our destination. You know, read it and weep. It is what it is. But here's what's fascinating then in this world. When we look at how technology is influencing this fact, and Harari spends more time in his book Homo Deus on this, a little bit in Sapiens, but goes through this conversation is that year after year after year, we as, a, a, as humanity are getting better at cheating death than we ever have. He writes in Sapiens that for men of science... Death is not an inevitable destiny, but merely a technical problem. People die not because the gods decreed it, but due to various technical failures. A heart attack, cancer, an infection. And every technical problem has a technical solution. I love that what we've done is we've processed death within this worldview, right? And to be honest, even as this happens, this might make us feel a little queasy, but friends, it's impacting the everyday because we as a society now have a very low tolerance for death. And instead of grappling with that then, we try to say, why couldn't we develop solutions for this? You know, if your heart is failing now, my brother is a, is a, uh, works with a, the largest pacemaker company in the United States, and he will implant pacemakers. It used to be, I remember, pacemakers for elderly people, but now they, they will put in people in their 30s and 40s who might have the, the uh, that have, are prone to having their heart give out. Or we even have heart transplants. It used to be this was, you know, these death sentence in of itself, but we can prolong that. 
Even though cancer rampages it, we figure out more and more every year about, you know, how that we can either, you know, prevent it or treat it or deal with it, whether through drugs or radiation. Basic things that we take for granted, that if it was 150 years ago, the likelihood of us dying was probably heightened by bacteria more than anything else. And now we know so much about different bacteria as we developed antibiotics among the spectrum. And this is the thing that bothers people too, is that even randomness in death now is no longer excused. So when we were in a place where an automobile accident took somebody's life, or, or, you know, even if it was within combat, which for, you know, again, thousands of years ago, more people died and men died in combat than anything else. Um, uh, combat, or even like a hurricane. What we look at then is try to say, if the right government policy had been in effect, then all of this would have been avoidable. See, for us, death is a problem that we should be able to solve. And this is Harari's critique then, historically, of how humanity has approached death. He writes, our best minds are busy investigating the psychological, hormonal, and genetic systems responsible for disease in old age. They are developing new medicines, revolutionary treatments, and artificial organs that will lengthen our lives and might one day vanquish the grim reaper himself. His critique is that the best and the brightest minds for thousands of years were religious and they were trying to interpret death rather to end it all together. As he said, and I had this quote here too, I didn't know, where he offers that. The problem was is that we were trying to teach people for generations to come to terms with death rather than to defeat it. And again, I would offer that this is a scientific critique then of, of, of faith but I, I think he presents here a false dichotomy. He's making us choose between two options. That either you're in the business of preventing death or interpreting it so that those of us who are alive or near death can grapple with it. But I don't think that we have to make either of those choices. But what we do, people of faith, is we understand then what lies behind it. Perhaps the most difficult concept that you and I have to grapple with is that if we read the scriptures and believe what they say, is that death was not originally part of God's plan for the world. That humans were not designed to die. But he set up parameters for the first creation to say, do what I say. Let's live in honest, open relationship. And they rebelled setting that up when he put them in the garden, he said, listen, everything here is for you except this tree. Eat it and you will die. And again, at this point, did Adam and Eve really have a thorough understanding of what that even meant? You know, you know I don't know if they had like Wikipedia of Genesis or whatever. It's like die not to exist anymore. Who knows if they actually had this full understanding. But what's interesting is that if you look at the curse, I always love that moment to where they eat it. They're enlightened, but they're like, hey, at least we're not dead. And they move on. But what they don't realize is that as a result of that, death becomes a part of life. What Harari and other thinkers want to say then is that if we can get off dwelling on death itself, and really focus on the prolonging of life, then we'll be better off. Like then we'll finally have arrived at this point where we as humans can be greater than anything. 
You know what's interesting about that? And this, it, it's, it's fascinating because you read the works of Harari and he's in, he even quotes other scholars who are saying, you know, you give us 100 years and we'll figure out how to make humans survive 500 years. Like what they're saying is like your great-great-grandchildren or whatnot will have the potential, not just that, you know, it used to be, hey, if you make it to 100, that's good. They're like, no, we'll make it to hundreds. And he's projecting this as science, which is fascinating because, you know, that seems just so crazy to us. But the scriptural narrative in the book of Genesis talks about this concept of people living inordinately long, right? This is where I love talking with people because they're like, no, 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 no. This is all metaphor. There's no way that this can happen. I'm like, look, y'all, God created the earth by speaking. So if this is totally unbelievable, there's a lot of stuff in this book that you're just going to struggle with. What's fascinating is that the development of the scientific record makes this absolutely more plausible than ever it was. So what's funny is it's like they're almost trying to engineer our way back to where we once were. But you see names like Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, and Jared who lived 930, 912, 905, 910, 895, 962. These crazy long lives... But this is what I love about this, is that for each of them in the, in, in the record, it says, and then he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. And there's this concept then that I don't think that science even could get us to. As much as they say, look, now we can redefine death because we are prolonging it, it is still the inevitability, and they haven't figured out to hack it. And even if they can extend this, what does that look like? What does it look like for us just then to kick the can down the road in efforts to avoid it without really grappling with it? And this is why I think the second thing we need to look at is then defining life. I think this is one of the things that when we look from a skeptical perspective, again, science gives us the answers to many, many beautiful things, but the things that it does not present us, it does not provide us with reason for why we are here. What I love about Harari, and I'm telling you, this was the thing that was a nugget in my mind when I read it, and really it was the impetus for me wanting to preach about this, because Harari is looking at what does it look like when we expand human living, and what implications does that have for science to be able to define what life is. And where Harari lands in my you know, observation is beautiful. First, he talks about this, something that we need to understand. From a scientific perspective, if there's no God, right? Subjective experiences are essential for our survival. So what he's saying is that there are aspects of this life that aren't defined and also of humanity that comes down to subjectivity. Things that aren't programmed, right? Because if we didn't feel hunger or fear, our sapien ancestors would not have bothered to chase rabbits or flee lions. Why was there this move for them to seek food or to avoid being killed? It's because they had within even their primordial minds the expectations that dying is not good. They had not seen any of their kinfolk come back from the dead. Therefore, it impacted everything that they did. All these little intricate experiences. Life, from Harari's perspective, from an evolutionist perspective, life was really defined and given purpose because of death. This is, so I'm landing at, this was the most fascinating thing where, again, great thinker, and I love this quote right here. So I know you're not going to get geeked out about it as much as I am, but just work with me on this walk, okay? We mortals 
daily take chances with our lives because we know that they're going to end somehow. So we go on treks in the Himalayas, swim in the sea, and do many other dangerous things like crossing the street or eating out. <laughs> I love that because, hey, you know what? I, I got hepatitis A from a restaurant, so um, enjoy that as you're eating lunch today. <laughs> but if you believe you can live forever, you'd be crazy to gamble on infinity like that. What Harari is saying is that this is the problem if we start to prolong death. If we prolong death, then humans will no longer live in fear of it. And if they reach that point where there's no fear, then they are not going to continue to develop themselves or their society because it will be less about what the future holds for us and how we can protect the present. There will be no focus and vision toward tomorrow. And friends, I think that is the most fascinating thing that Harari says here because it's true. As much as we look at death as something that we can out-engineer, there is this reality within our lives that the fact that we know it could come to an end motivates us to do something. And it's funny when, you know, I look on the internet and see millennials and their desire to change the world. It's usually really founded in this point as they realize that they only have so much time to get it done. And for many of us, it's the same motivation, right? We've only been blessed with so many years. What will we do that's significant? And what Harari is saying, you take that out of the equation, then what do we do? We're just protecting. So in a way... I would suggest that what the scriptures are able to do is to provide this definition of death to give us a purpose that makes the life that we live more robust. And thus, when the psalmist is writing the, the beautiful phrase about God as shepherd, there's the phrase that I just love, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because the Lord is with me. What the scriptures do, what our faith does, is offer hopes within the life that even though death awaits us all and it's fleeing, even in the darkest valley, God is there with us. It provides meaning to these lives that we live and speaks to us about death in a way that allows us to project towards some positivity in a horrible experience. And why is that? I think it's the most important topic, life after death. Life after death. And again, this is what the evolutionist brings to the table, is because there is no God, because there is no such thing as any immortality beyond this world, then what we have here is all we get and we need to make the most of it. And there's a cartoon I didn't even put up. I thought about including it, and it goes long. But to, to see how skeptics define death with nothing more significant, it's so sad and hollow. And I'm not trying to, like, demean, because they would demean on us saying, no, you know, you just developed a system, a crutch, to be able to deal with this hardened fact. But I would say, no, what you do is you suck the life out of life itself. And this is the question with which we have to grapple with. Is all of this just happenstance or is there something more? One more quote from Harari from his book Homo Deus that I want to 
um, focus on two slides here. Hence, even if we don't achieve immortality in our lifetime, the war against death is likely to be the flagship project of the coming century. When you take into account our belief in the sanctity of human life, which, by the way, this is something that is increasing more and more, is that the great evangelical uh, combatant over the years was this concept of abortion and us being able to take of life. That, that argument is coming along. You know, and now we're just trying to look at the fullness of life is what does that mean at every aspect for us to be able to care about those people who, are, uh, who, who we could help out from death. It adds the dynamics of the scientific establishment and top it all off with the needs of a capitalist economy. So he says, hey, at the end of the day, friends, you know, there's, a, there's money to be, paid in keeping pe- or to be made in keeping people alive. And, and I'll even say this, is not again the political theory here, but one of the aspects of the healthcare debate that is, you know, really pushing it further and further is this idea is that now we have expectations that we will keep everybody alive and that costs money and somebody wants to make money off of it. So the healthcare debate is going to get worse and worse in this country because we're used to people living longer. In fact, we expect it. There's going to be a relentless war against death that seems to be inevitable. This sentence, our ideological commitment to human life will never allow us to accept human death. It won't allow us to accept death. And that's the phrase that I just was really chewing on from Harari's book this week. Is death something that we can accept? And I'd offer for even us who are good Christian people, I would say that even we struggle with that because we have this appreciation for what technology has been able to do to make life prolonged so that we come to this idea that we do not accept that. And one of the reasons that these conversations, even when we're talking about science or, or just anything within a, a public forum, they become so contentious because we no longer want to accept imperfection because we believe that we should have optimal control over everything in our existence. Is it not true? It's crazy that, you know, I can have my phone over on the desk over there on airplane mode, and even if I'm in the midst of doing something, there's that tinge of apprehension in the back of my head because I'm so used to having it. And by the way, from that phone, I can conduct all my work from coast to coast at any hour of the day. I can find news that is happening in continents away from me. I can even set the temperature in my home through my phone because I'm used to having control. And one of the reasons that death becomes something that we struggle to accept is because it's the ultimate lack of control. We want to be able to prolong this life and what we have. And when that doesn't happen, we're out of control. And that lack of control, friends, is what really grabs us. But we have to say, and this is what it is, is control. Even from a spiritual level, control is an illusion. From a, Christological, from a Christian perspective... We, friends, were created by a God, and that God allowed us to be stewards, to use his resources for our good and pleasure. And then when he determines that it's up, it's, up, it's done. And I should watch that because even within that phrasing right there, then we look at death, you're like, wait, so just God decides that your number and that's go? No, if you want to look at a rounded theology of it, it is sin that puts the imperfection in the world that brings about death. But here's the issue. 
is that the sin issue for death is resolved in Christ from an eternal perspective. So we struggle with it now in the imperfection of the creation that was made imperfect by a sin, but we see that there's something more to this. We land at the end, right? We started this discussion in Genesis a few weeks ago. In Revelation chapter 20, we read of the great white throne and him seated on it, and earth and sky fled from the presence of the Lord, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, death, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is some scary crap, isn't it? Because when we talk about this, we're like, there's a lot going on. And that's why I love people doing interpretation of Revelation because they're like, no, this is, the, this is the seal and the Antichrist and all this stuff. Recognize this. What we are trying to see through this lens of a certain type of literature is this idea that, friends, death takes us everywhere, right? Especially in those days. There was a primordial fear of dying in the ocean because they're like, your body cannot resurrect because it's at the bottom of the sea. And the Apostle John is able to say, no. Right? It doesn't matter where you died. It doesn't matter the state of this body that you had. Is that in the end, it's all going to come before God to do with. And death gets eliminated. Friends, that is the difference that we can look at as believers. Is that the hope of glory that we have. Is that even though present is fleeting. That things will fade away. That even, you know, what once was will no longer exist. Whether it be buildings. You know what I mean? It's a... Love up the street. I don't know if you saw up on Woodburn is that they're destroying another building, you know, uh, to, to put up a new building. And it was funny, just a couple weeks ago, I saw the buildings that existed on that site before them. And eventually, friends, if this world goes long enough, they're going to tear that building down too. Like, it won't last. Everything is fleeting. Technology upon which we used to base our very existence will be non-existent. Anybody go to the doctor and say, you really need leeches. Because things transition and move. Even our bodies, friends, are fleeting. I've been in the rooms when people have passed away, and there's that experience where you're like, there's such a finality, but then you stop, and you say, no, there's not. Because there's something in us that is not fleeting, and that's our eternal soul. That is who God made you to last beyond what this is. There's something that lasts. The hope of glory. And friends, that end then of human life is still tragic, but not as much because it's not the end. I have an uh, interesting experience this time every year. It's happened the past few years. Is that uh, three years ago, this past month, our friend Todd died. And I love the idea where I bring this around because um, some of you have no idea who Todd is. And it seems kind of absurd that this uh, middle-aged man was on a kid's slide. But uh, Todd was one of the very first people from the neighborhood that found us as a church. And whereas sometimes people would come in and out, Todd was with us like in, you know, in thick. He, would, he was part of our men's group when we would go out 
on, you know, like uh, on trips and stuff, Todd was with us. And Todd battled mental illness most of his life. So I love this picture because I got him. That's about the biggest smile that you'd get out of Todd at any day. But then so many times he would call me just traumatic and talk about his existence. And he would say, Steve, if I die right now, I'm going to hell. And I would be like, let's unpack this thing. And I had so many ridiculous and inane conversations with this guy that you would only do with somebody who had mental illness. And um, had to, had to discovered him in his apartment. He had, he had passed uh, January, just three years ago now. And it's interesting because um, even heading into, and we had no idea it was like the end of his life, he would say, when I die, nobody's going to remember me. I have hardly any friends. You know, like, my life will have meant nothing. And I just remember telling him, it's like, come on, Todd. Like, number one, let's not just call our shot right in there. But I said, you have people who have cared for you and loved for you. And so the day I die, I'll remember Todd. What's funny is I'll continue to tell his story. And a story means really very little if this all exists for just, you know, the happenstance of particles colliding billions of years ago to put us where we are. But it means something more to me, something incredibly robust, because I knew that he loved Jesus and that his eternity is wrapped up into him. And as a result, something that saddens me today that that guy's not here, and there's times where I even had a special ringtone, I'll be in public, and it's a generic Apple ringtone, because I had to keep a separate one, because I had to know if he called at a time, I was going to have to talk a long time, and sometimes I didn't have the time. But I'll be out in public, I'll hear his ringtone, and I'll be like, Todd, I still remember that dude. And I guarantee you, I'll tell his story probably until I die. Think about this story, and then the other one this week, I really had this, this thought of, and um, I just like to bring this home just because, you know, we need to look at it, is that within our community, we've been blessed to uh, have somebody join us in the last year, and that's Sue. And Sue has become a good friend of ours, and, you know, to, to some of you as well. And uh, Sue moved to Cincinnati, really not because of our great cuisine or our wonderful public transportation, or our biking paths, ask her about those. Um, because of a privilege that she had. Look at that pic. Huh? Look at that gal. And that guy right there is Chadwick. Never met Chadwick. But it's funny how you can never meet somebody, but you feel like you know him. That's because Sue is a prolific writer, and you can go and internet stalk all of her life, and you can read all about the man. So it's very interesting. They were married for 13 years, one month, 17 days, until he suddenly passed away and uh, transformed her life. And, you know, I really believe as a result of that, God just put her here for now um, because there's still this process that you, that you work through in understanding what that meant. And shortly thereafter, she wrote this. So let alone me trying to bring some view into this, why not let one of us be able to say this? So this is something that Sue wrote that even if there are tears today, and there already are, it's ridiculous. I think it was like a year after or so she wrote this. Even if I feel this hole in my heart so keenly as I face another day without him by my side. Even if the road looks long and dark and I'd rather just lay on the ground than carry on. Chadwick would not want me to waste a perfectly good year on angst. He'd want me to grab this life with both hands and stretch it in every way I can, make, uh, I can to make sure I didn't miss any of it. That's the legacy he's left with me, 
and this is a thing that I can do. And I'm going to be as bold to suggest that the reason that our sister could write these words is not just because she's a profound thinker, but because she and Chadwick understood something that was more prolific about our existence, our existence that many of us understand. That this isn't it. That death happens. And even though skeptics will say it ought not define us, I think we have to grapple with the statement. Death defines our life. Death defines our life. However, the death of Jesus defines it even more. And it encompasses everything. Because it gives us a different perspective of what this is. It makes me move and live and act in my day-to-day differently. Hence why when the Apostle Paul writes this, it's just something that doesn't make it all okay. It doesn't mean that tears are not shed. It doesn't mean then that we just have to hasten people to this point, but it's the hope of glory. It's this idea that our faith speaks to the end of life so profoundly. Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the message for us as human beings here. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. The Lord God knew what he was doing. He grieves with us in death. The scripture speaks to that. But he also tells us to Fear not, because he went through it himself, and his death changes life. And that's the core centrality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We hold that 2,000 years ago, God left heaven and came to earth in flesh to live down with us. And in this flesh, days were numbered. He would not live forever. And in fact, when he had opportunities to escape death, he went boldly toward it, sacrificially on the cross, and gave up everything. Not because he wanted to make a point, because he wanted to change our eternity. And it is the grace of Jesus from the cross that forgives us of all sin and provides us life eternal with him. That is the centrality of who we are as followers of Jesus. That is why death no longer has sting, and that is why when we gather every week, we remember that moment in time, because that moment was in human history, but that moment transforms eternity. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to have a time of communion as we do every week. I know we're all followers of Jesus in this room, and as such, we just need to take some time to truly appreciate the life that Christ gave for us. So as we do all the time, Dylan's going to come up and and play for us. We'll have some people pass around the trays. Let's use the next moments of worship to remember the death that changed everything. I'll pray. We'll commune. Heavenly Father, to you be all glory and honor and praise. Because our mortality, Father, is not good enough for us to make sense of everything. 
Yes, we want control. Yes, we want to live life on our own terms. And even sometimes, Father, we'll permit you to have some influence, but we want you to influence our lives the exact way. Nobody plans tragedy, Father. Nobody plans to lose parents, friends, children. It's tragic. We give you praise, Lord, because we know that you grieve with us. Thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for giving all in death so that we would no longer need to fear its inevitability. Because you, God, through death, gave us life. believe this stuff for 40 years, God, and I still can't make sense of it. But what I can do is I can just say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. We give you praise as we remember in your name. Amen.